Hello, and welcome to another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast brought to you by Cheeky Scientist. I'm your host, Isaiah Hankel, and today we will be talking with Penny Dax on careers in the nonprofit sector. As always, if you'd like to listen to the full interview, just go to CheekyScientist.com backslash association and sign up on that page with your name and email address. You'll also get further information on how to get access to our complete job search blueprint for PhDs, as well as our private job referral network for PhDs only. Um, If you'd like to have these podcasts as well as our free articles delivered directly to your inbox as they become available, just go to CheekyScientist.com, our homepage, and sign up with your name and email address at the bottom of that page. And finally, you can listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes simply by searching Industry Careers for PhDs. So once again today, we will be talking with Penny Dax on careers in the nonprofit sector, and we will jump in and get started with the interview now. Thank you, Penny, for joining us. My pleasure. All right. So good to have you all on. We're going to jump into our questions here. Let me make sure I can actually get the questions that we have done. Um, we've had made. So I, I guess the first thing I want to ask is, and this is a question we ask all of our guests, what made you decide to transition out of the traditional academic career track? Sure. And it's funny sometimes because I feel like I end up seeing like a piece of uh uh, of an experience and then say, oh, well, that was why I was transitioned. And there's so many reasons it's sometimes hard to encapsulate into only one. But I think that um, at the end of the day, I just came to the realization that this really, it wasn't the path for me. I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't like bench work. I think a couple of major clues was that I would often be more excited or at least just as excited to talk to other people about their work as I was to be talking about my own work. And given the level of depth that you need to dive into for your own work, that was a real sign. Um, you know, I, I love the ideas of science, but I didn't really like doing it myself in terms of that granularity. Mm. Um, so that was a piece of it. And I was also um, I was very drawn or aware, perhaps, of some of the bigger picture challenges that I felt like I was working within. So, for example, the role of the animal models, um, you know, were they relevant to the human diseases that personally interested me or not? Um, and if they were, how, you know, how can you make more your research more translational or more relevant? I mean, what are the issues of reproducibility? There's so many big picture challenges facing the entire field of research. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I was able to really even touch them when I was at the lab because that's, there's only so much you can do from those roles. So it was exciting to me to kind of be in a different kind of role where you can actually actively think about those big picture problems. Yeah, I really like um, the way you phrase that, uh, you know, too much granularity at the bench. And we see a lot of PhDs transition away from the bench, for example, for that reason, um, and into something bigger where you can have your hands on more things. Uh, I also like what you brought up about being able to help with these larger, larger themes like reproducibility. Uh, you know, a lot of people are saying there's a reproducibility crisis in, in academia. Uh, so getting outside of it to work on some of those projects that, that are larger with a larger maybe purpose, I guess, might be the right way to say it, uh, is interesting. But staying on your transition, what were some of the, the challenges you had personally? You, I mean, if you made the decision, OK, this isn't for me, I want to get out of academia. Did you have challenges? What were the sticking points for you? Well, I was fortunate in that I had the luxury of time. So I was in, I was one year into a three-year fellowship when I realized that I just don't want to stay in academia. I really want to make this transition. The biggest sticking point was that I had no idea what I wanted to transition to. 
I, I'd kind of gone through my PhD assuming that I would just, okay, I didn't like everything about it, but there were some pieces I would, and I would just hold off and decide later what I wanted to do. And when I finally made the decision, I didn't know what options there were. My, my mind kind of leapt to certain options like publishing because I knew that I didn't want to stay at the bench. And I knew that um, those were the areas that I was familiar with, right? Like, you know, the editors of major journals, because as an academic, you see those, uh, what those editors perhaps are doing. And similarly, like I saw the options of the nonprofit um, because I was more familiar with those people. I think that there's more breadth of career options than I was aware of at the time that I would like, but I was very fortunate that I did land where I did because I think it is a kind of a perfect fit for my type of personality with what I do love about science and, and what I'm good at versus bad at. So uh, I mean, the most difficult part though was really just tracking down what were my options and moving that forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also just one kind of big picture issue is that I was very lucky that we ended up being in New York City when I made this decision. And if I had not been in New York City, I would have had a very different path because the access in New York City to a lot of different organizations Mm. made the it made it much easier for me to do informational interviewing to identify other types of paths. It made it much easier to network with people in those different organizations. And it also made the hiring process easier because the bar to get invited to interview if you are already living in the same city as the the, uh, organization is a lot lower. So, I mean, I hope that I would have gotten the job no matter what, but I think there's no question it did make a difference. Absolutely. And you mentioned that figuring out what your options were was difficult. How did you figure out what other options you had besides the traditional career track? And then what made you settle on nonprofits? And by settle, I mean, what made you choose to go into the, the nonprofit sector? Sure. So I did what I think a lot of the people listening to the webinar are doing. They, I looked for sources of information. So for me, the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, it was a local organization for me, and it offered some really good career training opportunities. I think they had like a weekend uh, sessions on uh, different career paths outside of academia that I attended. Science Careers, that website had a lot of interesting insights. Some of the, for example, I I still remember some of the information about patenting careers that I was exploring through that website. I didn't go that route, but it was helpful to get that kind of information that was available. Uh, The most important one, though, was simply informational interviewing. And I mean, I literally was at SFN, the Society for Neuroscience, and I just walked down the exhibitor's hall and I would look at people's badges and I'd say, you know, like your field is kind of in the area that I'm interested in. I don't know if you're hiring, but, and I'm, you know, I'm not in a rush because I have another two years of a fellowship, but I really like to explore what options I have. And I just cold, you know, I didn't cold call because there was no telephone involved, but I just went up to people and said, can you spare five or 10 minutes to just chat with me about why you made this career path, what you like about it and what you don't. Um, it was really helpful for me in both making the decision as well as making the contacts that helped me get the jobs. That's great. That's actually, for those of you listening, that's how I got my first job too. I went to a vendor hall at a conference and talked to people and gave them cards, asked them informational interview questions. So it's always great to hear because we think that there's some magic formula to figuring out information. Like we're PhDs. So in our field, we know that we research, ask questions, do this, but somehow when it comes to 
searching for a job, we blank that out. So I really like that you make it simple. Just go and ask questions uh, at conferences, locally, whatever, you know, emails, cold calls, whatever, and set up informational interviews. Uh, very, very important. The one piece of that I would recommend is, and just to clarify, because some people try informational interviewing where they go and they say, hey, I'm looking for a job. Will you talk to me? Yes. As soon as you make that ask, the walls come up because now you're asking them something from them and they're probably going to have to say no and that relationship gets closed off. Mm. But if you say, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not really sure exactly which direction or just I'm very interested in this career path. Will you talk with me to understand this career path? Then you open the door to a conversation. And if that conversation goes really well and they happen to have an opportunity, they might then let you know about it or they might help. Oh, I heard about an opportunity somewhere else. But you want to open the doors before you start shoving, <laughs> building those walls. So just yeah. one suggestion to try to um, be delicate about how you do it so that people don't immediately feel like you are asking a big ask from them. You're instead just asking for their expertise because everybody likes to feel like they're experts, right? So just give them that kind of, um, and it's, it's honest too. You'll then get a more honest and positive relationship with them. I just love everything you just said. And it's so good to hear it from you because I know for those of you listening, you're tired of hearing it from us. Uh, you know, don't ask for the job first. Really what, what Penny's saying is add value first. And a great way to add value, it doesn't have to be anything significant. It can just be showing appreciation or asking for advice, um, allowing them to talk about their expertise. I, I love the way you put it. Um, so, so circling back to the, well, let's talk a little bit about how you got the job. So you, you did this, you talked to people. What did the, the onboarding process look like? Did you have a traditional interview? Did you have maybe some phone or video interviews? Did you make a connection through a referral or through going to that, that vendor show that led to the, the job you have now? What did the process look like? Yeah. Um, for me, the process, it, it ended up being very fortuitous. So I ended up talking to somebody SFN and, you know, I was having other interviews at the time, but she just said, yeah, we've got this job opportunity. And to be honest, I didn't like as it was described because I thought as it was described that I was just going to be hired to write reviews for them. And that seemed a little bit, a little bit boring. Maybe. So I didn't end up applying for it. And it was another informational interview that I was doing where someone said to me that one of the most important things you need to do is just get out of the lab. You need to get postdoc as more on your background of your resume rather than your current label. And that when you make that first jump, there are often, it's often easier to go from one position to another once you've made that transition. Once you've proven, they say that you have some of the soft skills required more on the business side of science than on the bench side of science, for example, then it can be easier to make that transition. So in having that discussion, I then went back to that open position and I asked, is it still available? They told me no. And I said, well, okay, well that sucks, but let's just, uh, I would still love to have an informational interview in more, in more depth with you. And then the position opened up again because the person they were going to hire had fallen through. And within, I think, so I had an interview with uh, the director, with the executive director, with the uh, chief operating officer and developmental officer, because this was a nonprofit that does a lot of fundraising. I also interviewed with the donors, which mm. um, that varies a lot depending on the nonprofit organization, but at least at the previous organization that I was at, there was, this is a major donors, meaning uh, high net worth donors that would provide support. And so it was important for them to have somebody who could interface with those donors. 
that doesn't happen with all positions, even at the Alzheimer's Foundation. My position was a bit unique in that the program was solely funded by one set of donors. Mm. Um, but still, that, that was the general process. So. Um, oh, that's fantastic. So, just to recap, because so many, so many great things here. Uh, I love everything that you're touching on. One, don't just focus on your technical skills, right? You heard Penny say that. Your soft skills, your transferable skills, very important too uh, throughout the process. Um, also, you know, she, she interviewed with multiple people at the organization, very, very common, and knowing how to talk to each of those different audiences. Uh, and, and the fact that even that opportunity came up, like you said, it was fortuitous. And this is why networking is kind of, it's always a skill and an art. But I also want to reiterate that she followed up, right? So she heard a no, which a lot of us hear a no, and then we stop, we quit, right? But if you follow up, a no's can often turn into yeses because candidates fall through, whatever it might be, uh, other positions open up. So a lot of great takeaways there. Thank you. Uh, switching gears a little bit. So we're, now we're talking about the the actual position itself. Okay, so you get you got the job. You're into the nonprofit role. What does it look like? What do you do? Let's just start with what you do on a day to day basis. Sure. So I, I think I have to preface that by saying that every nonprofit is very different. These are all small organizations. So, for example, the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation was funded by high net worth donors. It was small. It was very much. Um, it was very connected with the scientific field. It had a very direct admission. Um, the American Epilepsy Society that I'm at currently is a membership society. And so there are a lot of people that are kind of almost like a democracy that are kind of helping guide where we might want to go. So the structures can be extremely different and the focus can be very different. Like the American Epilepsy Society is providing, really focusing on early career support. So it's identified. So uh, whereas the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation was very much around translation. How do you specifically accelerate drug discovery or therapeutic discovery um, and not considering any funding or support for the basic sciences? So the day-to-day -day work, I mean, the most high-level important thing that you can do from my perspective is identify what are the real needs. Because any single researcher or you know organization that you talk to will have their own perspective of what's important. And so you've got to be able to listen to a lot of different voices and a lot of different perspectives and try to have some kind of qualitative and quantitative ways to separate those out and identify what are the unmet needs that you can try to fill and match that based on the resources of your organization. And of course, the other team members that you're going to be working with deliver on whatever that may be, as well as the people who are providing the money to begin with. If you, you know, if donors, for example, have a vision and you end up doing something incredibly different, well, you probably have that right, but it might have, uh, make it harder to get more money to get it done. So it's managing kind of expectations and trying to manage what you have in hand and what can you deliver on, which frankly is really fun. Um, I, I truly had never been so intellectually stimulated in my life until I went into the, to the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation with that first shift. It was just so invigorating, both in terms of the programmatic side that I was just talking about, but also the breadth of the science that you need to understand. And when I say breadth of science, I think both in terms of the breadth of the topics, like, uh, you know, are you talking about inflammation? Are you talking about oxidative stress? What are the different pathways? But also the levels of science going from uh, all the stages of drug discovery, for example, are you talking about clinical trials? Are you talking about regulatory science? Are you talking about the very basic exploratory science? 
you are never the person who is the expert in the room because, and, and maybe this is jumping ahead because there's, you can't be an expert in all these things, right? Yeah. But to do the job well, you at least have to have a basic understanding of what questions need to be asked across those different levels. And if you, or, or awareness of when you don't know that information because then you'll know that you need to go to an expert and ask those questions. Mm. So I, I think I've, I've maybe diverged a little bit from your original question, the day to day. Yeah. So no, no, that, I appreciate that. So I think we, we covered the, the, the high level first, which is important so that you know really what your motivations or drivers are the right way to ask questions uh, in a nonprofit role. The fact that there's, you know, they, it's going to vary from organization to organization, how they're structured a little bit. Very valuable. But yeah, let's drill down to the practical now. You wake up, you go into the office. How often during the week do you talk to donors? How often are you doing team building stuff or, or working with your team or meetings? What, what kind of a, what does an average day look like on a real kind of visceral level? Sure. So um, trying to balance out those two different organizations because they are so different. I would say if you consider donors either like the members that are supporting the American Epilepsy Society and the, the high net worth donors that were at the Alzheimer's Foundation. Um, I would say that I was interfacing a few times a week with each of them, uh, either by email or phone or in-person meetings. Um, on the day-to-day basis, there is a lot of, there, there's, it really depends. At the Alzheimer's Foundation, about almost half of my job was evaluating different scientific approaches. So different therapeutic strategies, um, different. So reading a lot of literature, evaluating them, maybe having calls with experts to get their input on what the gaps might be, uh, writing up synopses. Um, There might be things like organizing advisory panels to try to get at certain questions or um, a large part of it is, I think, more traditionally uh, putting together funding priorities. So that is going to involve lots of phone calls um, with the different stakeholders in the field. It's going to involve a review of what other nonprofits and the NIH is is providing. So lots of sitting on your computer, lots of sitting and looking at um, browsing the internet, either for papers or for funding opportunities that are being advertised. Um, When you do want to put together something like an advisory panel, then it's got to be a lot of uh, a lot of all that same stuff, um, as well as putting together those in-person meetings and going to conferences to talk to people. I think for going back to the funding strategies, because that's uh, what most nonprofit people do a lot of, then you're also drafting the application guidelines and the review criteria for the reviewers. You are maybe uh, receiving letters of intent and applications that come in and doing an initial triage based on whatever criteria that you and uh, your colleagues or your advisory board set. Uh, Sometimes that's based on programmatic questions like, you know, basic eligibility. Is it the right type of research? And sometimes it's more on the quality of the proposal itself. It really depends. Um, So then you might do that. Then you might match the proposals to specific reviewers uh, and make sure that the reviewers are matched based on expertise, for example, and based on whether or not they're going to be responsive. Mm. Uh, Then you schedule calls. Not as my fun. Not always as fun, but it has to be done. Um, Schedule the calls. You organize, say, the agenda for that. uh, And then field the conversations that go through during the panel discussions. Organize the feedback and send it back to the applicants. Um, 
once the grant is underway, then you've got to do things like contracting. Now, that depends on the organization. A lot of organizations have administrative support to handle contracting. Um, some don't. It just varies. Then you've got to do uh, monitoring the progress of the research as it goes on. So maybe every six months or every year, you want to make sure that they are submitting outcomes, that they are doing the work that they've said they were going to do. For example, if they changed it, why? All kinds of things like that. Um, there's also a lot of other softer side or communication sides where you need to make sure that if, if your organization is supporting research, then at some point you're going to have to prove the value of that. So that means that you have to communicate what you're doing to your stakeholders uh, or communicate what your researchers are doing to your stakeholders. And usually there's going to be a communications team to help with some of that, but they won't know really the research. And so you're going to have to be the one to often puts it into a lay language summary um, and helps make sure that if it gets adjusted by the communications team, that it does still stay true to the science itself. Um, you might need to pull together metrics that might be helpful. Like for example, how do you monitor the success of your awards program? Is it based on the Alzheimer's Foundation? Um, you know, everybody wants to say, well, we funded the next drug, but that's, that's a really slow turnaround time for donors. So yeah. instead it might be something like, uh, for every grant that you give on average, how much follow-on funding does that lead to? Like mm -hmm. If you fund an early stage of a drug discovery program, does it lead to a $3 million NIH grant? Uh, does it lead to patents? How would you, I mean, it really depends on what kind of research you're funding, but what are the metrics of success? Track them down or contract somebody to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. And so uh, I think, we, we, we've transitioned nicely from the day-to-day -to, -day to, again, really talking about the drivers and now going into even metrics KPIs. Uh, uh, very important. And I want to kind of, I want to consolidate all of this to talking about maybe a few key pros as you see them to working in nonprofit versus working in for-profit or in academia, as well as maybe a couple of cons just in terms of a comparison or differences. Sure. So... Pros, it can be very stimulating. There's a lot of shifting tasks and needs that you need to respond to. You have to use a lot of different aspects. Soft skills are important, for example, as well as the harder scientific skills. Um, you can be connected to many of the best minds in your field um, because you are often bringing new money and resources in. Uh, you have a high-level view often of the most exciting science that's underway, which is can be very fun to kind of just get that snapshot. There's, depending on the organization, there can be a lot of latitude for creativity. How do you feel like uh, you can better support the organization or how can the organization better serve the researchers or the mission of the nonprofit? I mean, it depends because you'd always need to be matching and looking for those sweet spots that will align with all the different stakeholders that you work with. But I've found that there's a lot of opportunity for creativity and that's been a lot of fun. Um, I also do believe that there's an aspect where what you do does feel like what makes a difference. Maybe we're all naive, but it, it certainly is uh, something that when I'm explaining to my children why I go into work in the morning, um, it's helpful to, to believe that what I'm doing makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I think another part, I, I was listing this before the call, so <laughs> excuse if this sounds like a list, but there's a lot of collaboration between nonprofits and that can also be fun. Um, there's some really positive 
there's a really great consortiums where you can get a lot of input from others who are in similar positions to you. So there's certainly competition too, and you know there's always going to be elements of that. But I've been really impressed overall. Um, yeah, and cons though, I mean, there are definitely cons. So these are small organizations, and while that is part of why it can be stimulating with all the diversity that you're asked to do, it can also mean that you have limited opportunities to move forward, uh, or excuse me, to move up. There's only so many positions available in any single nonprofit. There's only so many positions across the entire field. So you can have, you know, it's it's not like you can spend the rest of your life um, and continue getting new positions or new titles. Um, you can stay at a single nonprofit. Well, let's let's jump into that real quick because I did want to talk about trajectory. Um, so you mentioned it's a it's a con in one sense. Where do people usually use uh, or uh, positions in nonprofit as a stepping stone to other types of positions? Do you have people you report to? What I mean, is there a hierarchy or is it fairly flat? Are the donors at the top of the hierarchy? What, what does it look like? Uh, it varies a lot based on the nonprofit. So uh, most of the time, the donors are not going to be at the top. Um, there might be, so the donors might, however, I guess they're kind of at the top. If they're at the board of directors, then they yeah. have a large level of oversight over what gets done. Mm. So, for example, at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, our executive director, the founding executive director, is very much uh, the, the, the thought leader for and, and the action leader. I mean, he is really the, I don't know what the right term would be, but he was he's very much the leader at that space. But at the end of the day, the grants that get funded are signed off by the board of directors. And I think most organizations will have that level of oversight. So it, as a contrast with with a membership society that I'm at right now, the members have a board of a board of directors or a board of governors. I mean, it, there's different terms, but there's still a layer of oversight. And I think most organizations will have something like that. Some of the smaller nonprofits, um, or there are some nonprofits that are very patient driven where maybe a, a mother or family member of somebody who went through a very serious illness, then created a nonprofit. And some of them are just incredible with what they've managed to create. But um, it really varies. So with so in those cases, that person will usually still be the main boss, I guess you could say. But uh, I think the highest position you can probably have is chief science officer. Chief science officer. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so it depends. Some nonprofits have just one scientific, one scientist on staff. Others might have seven or eight. I think the Michael J. Fox Foundation has somewhere around like 12 or more. Wow. And so they are involved with a lot of things that go beyond just granting. And for example, like they might be creating resources that the field itself can use. They might be using contract research organizations to really even lead their own research programs. Um, so that varies a lot. Right. Uh, people do use it as stepping stones to go into other careers. Um, I have a colleague, for example, who's gone on to equity research and now business development at the biotech. Yeah, but well, there's a lot of different ways because you network with lots of people from different fields. So it can be a good stepping stone. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely in terms of what you said, in, ter in across the board, collaborations, networking, it seems like a great investment. Um, you also mentioned how you, you develop a lot of different skills that transfer easily uh, to other nonprofits or to positions outside of the nonprofit sector. I want to circle uh, back to these skills that you've mentioned, these transferable skills. What are some of the skills, or whether you call them soft skills or transferable skills, that PhDs 
should develop or I guess highlight if they already have them to get into a nonprofit role? I think communication skills, uh, for one thing, leadership skills. Uh, if you've served on committees, for example, like if you were the student representative on a committee, um, that's something you can highlight because it does show a level of leadership and an ability to interface with people at other levels or other positions than you. Um, and I think whatever you choose to do, most most PhDs will have experiences that they can draw from. What matters in part is how you pitch it. Mm. So when I've been hiring, for example, and I've seen cover letters where somebody lists that they've done Western blots, to me, I immediately throw that one in the trash. You can list on your CV that you know how to do Western blots, but if you think that the primary point on a cover letter is to tell me that you know how to do Western blots for a position where you're going to be at your computer and at your phone, then you don't understand what this position is going to take and you don't have the communication skills to be able to do it properly, at least not until you have a lot more training. Thank you for joining us for another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. If you're interested in attending one of these interviews live, or if you're interested in getting access to the full interview, including all of the background materials and show notes, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how to become a associate. Uh, you can get on the wait list for the next association enrollment period there and learn full details about the program. It's a program specifically designed to help PhDs transition uh, into top industry positions. If you would like to see receive more of these interview highlights uh, via our podcast uh, sent directly to your email, go to cheekyscientist.com and email subscribe under where it says start here. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, Until next week, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.